Hey, Coral Church, so glad that you're with us today. You know, if you've been with us, you know that we just finished up last weekend. We just finished up our fall series, The Kingdom Culture, where we studied uh, for three months, basically, the Sermon on the Mount. And then this last Wednesday, wow, if you are not part of uh, The Refuge, what an amazing, creative journey that was. And we're just a few days away from our Christmas Eve celebration on Thursday at 5. I hope you'll be a part of that. So we find ourselves in this weekend, and this weekend is kind of after the fall series, right before Christmas, and it's a unique weekend, and I'm very excited about this weekend because I'm going to do something a little bit different in our time together today. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that it's broken into Old Testament, New Testament, and the Old Testament ends when the prophet Malachi uh, pins his book, his, his uh, minor prophet, uh, the, the book of Malachi, and then everything goes quiet for 400 years. And the New Testament starts, you know, four centuries later with the birth of a child. And, and um, you know, and that's kind of really what we're, we're celebrating. That's what we're going to focus on today, the birth of this child. And in the, in the narrative that Luke gives us, in Luke chapter 1, verse 66, we read these words. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Now this is talking about a birth of a child. The the start, the opening of the New Testament and the birth of this child. And you can summarize the birth of this child kind of this way. There's an angelic announcement. And with this angelic announcement, the angel comes and says this child is going to be born. In fact, gives the name that this child will be named before the child is even born or before it's even conceived. Then there's a miraculous conception And then there's this birth of this very, very special child that starts off with not just parents, but great numbers of people rejoicing. And then just over three decades later, this child's life ends in an unjust um, execution. So when we talk about this birth of this child, we could always say, you know, what child is this? We could sing that to the tune of green sleeves if we wanted. And if we're talking about this uh, birth of this child and ask what child is this, You might answer, the Sunday school answer, Jesus. And while all of this could be said about Jesus, that's not the child that we're talking about. In fact, that's not the child that this verse is talking about. We're talking about the birth of John the Baptist, kind of the NT in the BC, the New Testament before Christ, because there is this spectacular birth of this child before Jesus is born. Now, John's uh, story gets overshadowed, and rightfully so. You don't, you don't want to upstage the, the Messiah, the Son of God. But today, I want us to spend some time uh, looking at that. And if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture, primarily out of Luke chapter 1. We're going to spend a lot of time in Luke chapter 1, not exclusively, but a lot of time there. Now, Normally, I don't talk about titles of sermons, but this one is different. I've entitled this sermon, Pre-Funk Benedictus Rabbit Chase, for a very good reason. A pre-funk is something that happens before the main event. So this weekend is actually the pre-funk to Christmas Eve, and the story we're talking about is the pre-funk to the birth of Jesus Christ. Benedictus is a Latin title of a song that we're going to be looking at later in the sermon. And the rabbit chase, the rabbit chase. Some of you know that I like to chase little rabbit trails where something that sparks an idea and maybe it, it takes me off course and it's, it's something that's interesting to me but maybe not relevant to the point or, or maybe it's just a, a what if and I wonder and I, where would this lead. 
And so today, uh, usually I, I don't allow myself to go too far down rabbit trails. Today, I'm going to be doing a bit of chasing rabbits. Now, if you've ever thought about hunting rabbits, you know that one of the best rabbit dogs there is, is the beagle. I mean, you look at this guy. You know what he's saying? He's standing there saying, let me chase that rabbit. Uh, let, me, let me go after that rabbit. This is how I feel almost every weekend. Let me chase that rabbit. Let me chase that rabbit. So today we could sing, who let the dogs out? Because I'm going to be chasing some rabbits as we go. And, and, and with that, we're, we're going to be looking at a lot, of different, a lot of different scriptures, a lot of different rabbit trails. Some of them might end up with a dead end. Some of them might not be relevant, but they might be interesting to me and so, to some of you. Today's sermon is going to be a little bit on the ADD side. Some of you are going to hate it. Some of you are going to finally get it. And uh, so what I'm going to attempt to do in our time together is to cover these topics. One old priest, two ends of the Bible, that'd be Genesis and Revelation, three gospels, four prophets, five rabbits at least that I'm going to chase, one old uh, homely genius, and it's all going to point to Jesus. Now, I'm not calling Jesus the homely ge genius. The homely genius and all this points to Jesus. So if you're ready, in the, in the uh, words of the famous uh, philosopher, Elmer Fudd, let's chase some wabbits. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Now, Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to primarily be. But before we get there, we have to go to the pre-funk verses because there's some stuff that leads up to Luke chapter 1. Again, if you're raised in church or been around uh, church for any length of time, you know that with the Christmas narratives, there are, are prophecies that foretell of that, foretold the birth of Christ and, and the surrounding um, elements of the story long before so, for instance, 700 years before the birth of John or Jesus, the prophet Isaiah gives these prophecies. You know, the virgin will be with child. That was spoken 700 years before. The most famous one was, uh, you know, unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, all that. But there's another prophecy that isn't spoken of as much. And it's this pre-funk, this other birth. So there's a time where Isaiah is saying to Israel, I, I want you to be comforted with knowing what's going to happen. So he says, comfort, comfort to my people Israel. And then he gives this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. So he's talking about not the Messiah. He's already prophesied about the Messiah but there's another one, a one that comes before, a messenger, a herald, a forerunner, someone who will talk about and prepare the way for this Messiah. So Isaiah gives these prophecies. People are excited. They have comfort. They have hope. There's going to be a Messiah someday. And before the Messiah, there's going to be this one who's coming apparently from the desert to say, you know, make ready the, the path and the way for, for the Lord, the Messiah. Years pass. Decades pass. Centuries pass pass. No Messiah comes yet, and no voice of one crying in the wilderness yet. And then we get to Malachi, and this is like 300 years after Isaiah. And Malachi gives some prophecies about this one to come as well. And he gives a detail that Isaiah either wasn't aware of or left out. And we read this in Malachi. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah, this is the stuff in yellow here I want you to hold on to. I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will, very important line here, turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers. So, so Isaiah says, listen, 
there's this one that's going to come before the Messiah. Malachi says it's actually Elijah. Now, Elijah, 450 years earlier, chariot of fire comes in. He gets swept up into heaven in a whirlwind, never actually died, which is kind of cool. He just goes up to heaven in this whirlwind. And now Malachi is saying, Elijah's going to come in this line. I want you to hold on to this. He will turn the hearts of the father, fathers to their children. So now there's this waiting again. Malachi gets done. Okay, so we're, now we're waiting for Elijah and then the Messiah. Decades go by. Centuries go by. 400 years of silence. Crickets. No update. They've got to be wondering, did we get it wrong? Were the prophets off? Have we disqualified ourselves? What's going on here? Didn't God hear or say and, and, and all that? I mean, 400 years they're waiting. Some of you get really ticked off when, when that thing you ordered does not qualify for the Amazon Prime two-day delivery. You, you just can't wait any longer. They've waited 400 years before we get to this story. Now, now Christmas season is often referred to as Advent, and Advent means the coming, the arrival, and they've been waiting. But they've been waiting so long, I would imagine a lot of people, while they believe that it will happen someday, have probably lost any kind of confidence that it will happen in their lifetime. Maybe like some of us feel regarding the second coming of Christ. We know it's going to happen, but boy, I just don't know if it's going to happen. Regardless, this is the case been waiting for hundreds of years. Now we get to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse uh, four, or 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Let's stop here for a second. There was also in the Old Testament a king named Zechariah. He was a bad king. He only lasted six months. That's not who we're talking about. There was also a priest in the Old Testament. He actually got murdered while doing his priestly duties in the, in the temple. That's not who we're talking about. There was also a prophet named Zechariah who wrote the book, Zechariah. That's not who we're talking about. This is a different one. This is a New Testament priest, or in the time of the New Testament, a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. A little bit of a, a bunny trail here, not too far down. In 1 Chronicles 24, it talks about 24 divisions of priests. Aaron was, was the, the first priest, and then he has four sons. Two of them disqualify themselves. They're taken out of the priesthood. So these 24 divisions. Abijah happens to be the eighth division, the eighth priestly division. So Zechariah is a part of that line. He has a wife named Elizabeth, and she was also a descendant of Aaron. So her dad had been a priest as well because it was a lineage thing. It was, a, it was inherited by being born into that, that bloodline. Both of them, both Zechariah and Elizabeth, both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. So here's this couple. They come from godly homes. They've got this godly marriage. They follow God's word. They, 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 they know the laws. They know the prophets. And, and especially, Zechariah would have been very, very well-versed in the Old Testament scripture. These two people carry a deep, deep sorrow and disappointment. It's something that they may, they may have carried for 40 or 50 years even. It's this deep sorrow, and this is what we read. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. You know, you can imagine as a young couple, they were excited and anticipated starting a family, and it just didn't happen. And they prayed and they fasted and they confessed and they pleaded with God and the personal disappointment and the tension it brought in their relationship and culturally the idea that they were somehow cursed and, 
and spiritually, and, and, and they knew the story of Hannah and how she prayed and made a promise and God gave her, and, and you know they've made those same promises and they've prayed and they've fasted and they're confused and hasn't God heard our prayers and, and every month there's a reminder of no, you still don't have a baby and, and over the years that deep heartache, that sorrow, that disappointment comes to the point where they just resign themselves because they don't even get the monthly reminder that they're not gonna have kids. And they're well along in years. Most scholars, while we don't know for sure, estimate that they were probably in their 60s or 70s. But they continue on, faithful, serving the Lord. All right, so Zechariah says, once when Zechariah's division was on duty, so as the uh, part of the Abijah, the, the eighth division, twice a year, his division would go to, to Jerusalem to serve. They were on duty, and he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, whether they cast lots, drew, drew uh, straws, whatever. He was chosen, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. This isn't something that, that every priest got to do. In fact, you might go your whole lifetime and not get called on that, because there were thousands and thousands of these who would serve in the priesthood. But this was his day, and he goes in, and he's burning uh, the incense before the Lord. Now, we covered the tabernacle last summer when we studied Moses and how that's all laid out and how there's the entrance into that, you know, in the tabernacle. And then there's the, the showbread and the, and the big candelabra and the, and the, the um, altar of incense. And on the other side of that was the Holy of Holies. So, <clears throat> excuse me, the temple was set up the same way. So he goes in to, to do the, the burning of the incense, which was done every day, and outside everyone's praying, and while he's inside, verse 11, 11, it says, then an angel of the Lord, we'll find out later it's Gabriel, doesn't say that yet, but we will later, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. All right, this is a little rabbit trail for me. Luke is a doctor. He doesn't just throw details in for fun. He's investigated. He puts out an orderly account of this. Why, what about the right side of the altar? What's the story on that? And was it Zechariah's right side or was it the angel's right side? If they're facing each other, their right sides are gonna be two different ones. And there's all kinds of thoughts about this. Uh, just a little bit of a bunny trail we'll chase down. The right side throughout scripture is often symbolic of authority. After Jesus made purification for sins, he goes and he sits down at the right hand of God, sits on the right side of God. All authority in heaven and earth is given to him. He's got authority over death and sin and the grave. He's got all authority. So the right side is authority. Maybe that's it. Maybe. The right can also mean power and strength. That, that God upholds me with his powerful right hand. It's that strong strength. And here comes Gabriel and the strength of the Lord. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good one. Or maybe... It's the whole idea of, of honor and, and favor, that when Jesus divides the, the sheep and the goats, the sheep he puts on his right side and the goats he puts on his left side. Maybe all three of them. One commenta uh, commentary I wrote said, maybe it's this. Maybe it's not so much about the right, and this is a little bit of a stretch, but I, I kind of like it. The way that the tabernacle or the temple is laid out is that the angel would have been between Zechariah and the Holy of Holies, but not between Zechariah and the entrance exit. So maybe just him being on the right side of the altar is all about a choice. It's, it's a question that, that Zechariah has a choice. Do I stay in here and hear what this, this, this angel says, or, or do, I, do I run out of here? And maybe it's this idea that, listen, Zechariah, <laughs> You can be on the right side of this story if you want to be. You can, you can join in on what God is doing here, but you don't have to. 
you can run out of here and you can just go on and no one will ever know different and you're going to miss out on a great opportunity, but it's a choice. You know, in, in, the, in the Christmas story, there, there are a lot of angels. I mean, an angel comes to Zechariah, angel will come to Mary, angel will come to, to Joseph, angels uh, come to the shepherds, a lot of angels. And sometimes we have our little uh, pictures of the nativity, the, the crush, whatever, and we've got the angel. And sometimes we get this idea that the angel looks like this. Uh, you know, big droopy eyes, kind of upside down droopy eyes, but, you know, kind of cuddly and cute and just wonderful. I'm just saying, maybe there are angels like that, but they're not Bible angels. They're not the Bible angels that we read about. Okay, let's get back to Zach. So he's in there. He's, he's, he's doing this, this, this burning of the incense. There's an angel, and this is what it says. Zachariah saw him. He was startled. So yeah, I mean, granted, you turn around, like, whoa, there's someone else in here. No one else supposed to be in here but me and God. And here's this angel, so there's a startle. But it, it doesn't just stop with him being startled. He's gripped with fear. Like he is freaking out. So it's, it's beyond just going, oh, oh, you startled me. Okay, let's get on with this. We're, we're lighting incense. No, no, he's gripped with fear. He's trembling. He's scared. What, what is this all about? But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Listen, that's what the angel always says. He freaks all of them out. When he comes to Mary, he says to her, don't be afraid. When he comes to the shepherds, they're sore afraid. Don't be afraid. Comes Zechariah, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. He knows him and he calls him by name. Side note. You know what the name Zechariah means? The Lord remembers. Hmm, cool. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Now, he's in there burning incense, which is symbolic of the prayers of the people. So he's probably thinking, okay, yeah, uh, uh, that's why I'm here, and, and it's good to know. Maybe the angel's saying, no, no, no. The prayers that you thought were never heard, the prayers that you gave up praying 20 years ago, the prayers that you thought the answer was no, your prayers have been heard. And then he says, your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He's probably going, listen, <laughs> all due respect, I'm trying to not be freaked out by this whole thing, but my wife and I can't have kids, and you think she's going to have, listen, if she gets pregnant, we'll call him John. We'll call him whatever you want. We'll, I mean, we'll, we'll call him Sennacherib. We'll, we'll call him Ebenezer. We'll, we'll call him Bartholomew. I, I don't care. It's, just, it's simply not going to happen, but, but we'll call him whatever you want. That's, that's fine. I just... And the angel says, let me tell you about this son that you're going to have. He'll be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Wow. Well, of course, if we had a son, of course, that'd be a joy and delight. And, and yeah, all of our friends and our neighbors and our relatives, everyone would rejoice. And yeah, that would be amazing if he was a man of God. Now, remember, at this point, Zechariah doesn't know that this is a fulfillment of a prophecy. He doesn't know this is the start of the New Testament. He doesn't know he's a part of the Christmas story. He doesn't even know if any of this is right. He doesn't even know if this is true. He doesn't even know if this is going to happen. And then the angel, remember Zechariah, he's, he's, a, he's a priest, he's a godly man, he knows the word of God. The angel starts quoting scripture when he describes this son. He says this, and he, this son of yours, he will go on before the Lord. That is quoting Malachi chapter 3. 
in the spirit and power of Elijah. Wait, 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 wait. This is sounding kind of familiar, right? Remember you held on to this? In the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Didn't we just read that? Isn't that what it says in Malachi chapter 4? So the angel is quoting one of the prophecies that had been given 400 years before that Zechariah is very much aware of. He says, and your son, your son is the fulfillment of that and the disobedience of the wisdom to the righteousness to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now he's getting into a little bit of Isaiah's prophecies. All this going on. Does this look kind of familiar? Let's, let's go back and see. What else did it say? Remember in Malachi 4? They're going to send you the, the prophet Elijah and he is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Can you imagine What's going on in Zechariah's head right now? You're saying that we're going to have a son. And we can call him John, that's fine. But you're saying that he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 40? He, my son, will be the fulfillment of Malachi 4 and 3? That he, that he, will be the one that our whole country has been waiting for for 400 years? And you wonder, if you'll give me grace here to kind of jump ahead in the story, we don't know how long Zechariah and Elizabeth lived after John was born. It says they were well long in years. They, they may have died while he was very young, most likely very young. But you wonder, does Zechariah tell his son about the angel? Does he say, son, I think you need to know what was spoken of about you. As we study Malachi, I want you to know, does he, I, I don't know. Does he tell his son? How much does John know? How much should he reveal? Would that go to his head? Well, again, let's, let's fast forward. 30 years down the road. We'll come back to Zach, hold on. 30 years down the road, John the Baptist comes out of the desert um, wearing weird clothes and uh, with a weird diet, which both of those things point back to Elijah. Similarities, that's a rabbit trail we don't have time for, but that's a cool one, maybe next year. Comes out of the wilderness. He's baptizing. People are coming down to the Jordan River from Jerusalem. That's not like just, you know, a hop, skip, and a jump. They're going, they're traveling and from all the Judean area, and his word is spreading. So the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're all coming. And they're all wondering, is this the Messiah? Because this is like this mystery man and, and what's happening. And, and so they actually ask him, and this is what they say. They ask him, if you're not the Messiah, then who are you? Are you Elijah? They know the prophecies. They know what Malachi says. They're asking point blank, are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. Are you the prophet? This is probably pointing to Deuteronomy chapter 18, which we covered briefly last summer in Moses, where Moses talks about a prophet that will be like me that you will listen to. He says, no. Finally, they said, well, then who are you? I mean, because, wow, you're not like anything we've ever seen before. And in typical John the Baptist fashion, a very, very humble posture, he does quote prophecy. He does, in essence, say, I am fulfilling a prophecy, but he makes sure that the attention is not about him. So his response is this. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. I'm here about the Messiah. I'm pointing people 
to the one who is to come. Now, if you're like me, you read all that and you say, okay, okay so wait, wait a second. I'm a little confused. Malachi says, Elijah's going to come. The angel tells Zechariah, your son will come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. John, who's Zechariah's son, comes and they ask him point blank, are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. Okay, so, so what do we do with all that? Because was Malachi off, or is John off, or was the angel off, or are they all off? What's going on? Well, a good thing to do is always go back to, well, what did Jesus say about all this? Because Jesus actually referenced this. A year or two later after this, um, not after the angel, not after the birth, after John, Jesus talks about John the Baptist. And he's talking about what an incredible man he is. And he says this, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Now he's quoting, or he's uh, referencing Malachi 3. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Okay, good. Doesn't answer our question yet. He says, all right, if you can handle it. Verse 14. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He is the Elijah who was to come. This type, this, this one in the power and the spirit of, of Elijah. And in fact, we'll have to stop on this rabbit trail now, but the, the rabbit continues on. Matthew 17, read that on your own, where Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah does show up, Moses does show up. Actually, I guess I am chasing that rabbit trail. So the disciples say, hey Jesus, why do people say that Elijah has to show up you know, first, and he's like, they obviously don't know Malachi. So Jesus says, Elijah has already come. And then the disciples realize he's talking about John the Baptist. Okay, all right, now, way too far down that rabbit trail. Let's get back to Zach. Remember, he's in, he's burning incense, the angel's there, he's terrified. Angel says, you know, quoting scripture and, and prophecies, your son's gonna be that. And, uh, and he's not sure about it. His response is this. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is. Be very careful what you say here. Gentlemen, learn from Zechariah here. He says, I'm an old man and my wife is. Um, well, um, choose your words wisely. Well, along in years, that's it, that's it, good choice. The angel's probably saying, good answer, Zachariah, good answer, yeah, okay, you're old, and she is just well along in years, that's, that's good. And the angel says, listen, I, I'm Gabriel, and I came to bring you this good news, and in essence, because you don't believe, I, it's still gonna happen, but because you questioned me, you doubted me, there's a bit of a consequence that goes with that, and this is what happens. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. The angel said the most oft-repeated phrase in all of the COVID pandemic. You're muted. You're muted. He says to him, listen, you're not going to be able to speak. Not only that, but this you'll be silent. If you read further on, you'll see he can't hear either. So he is now deaf. He's not able to speak because he didn't believe. He continues on, and in all this, 
He then walks out. People have been out, outside the, the, the tabernacle, the temple, praying, and they're wondering, what is taking him so long? I mean, I know he's old, but this should not take that long. You can imagine, he comes out, eyes big as saucers, face as white as a sheet, can't say a word, can't hear anything, and they're all like, something happened in there. He saw a vision. So he ends up finishing up his duty there for that week at the temple, and then he goes back home, and this is what we read. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. Here it is, the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now I'm going to have to fast forward through about nine, nine months, okay? So it says that she goes into seclusion for about five months. Probably a woman in her 60s, 70s pregnant. She's probably really, really sick. That could be part of it. Six months into her pregnancy, Gabriel shows up to Mary, says, Mary, you're going to have a baby. She goes, how can this be? She said, you know, your relative Elizabeth, she's in her sixth month. So Joseph finds out about this. He's going to put Mary away from, you know, divorce her quietly. The angel appears to, to Joseph in a dream. Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. When Elizabeth and Mary come together, John the Baptist, who's six months in utero, does this little backflip thing. You know, uh, Mary, or Elizabeth saying, how could I be so honored? Mary sings this song. It's an amazing thing. She goes back home. Now, nine months later, it says this. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. And she says, on the eighth day when he's going to be circumcised, we're going to name him John. Women didn't get a say in what their children's names would be. This was a man's duty, especially a son. Well, for some reason, you can't hear, can't talk. Zechariah is not involved with all this. And they're saying, no, 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 you're calling him Zach Jr. Of course, that's, you don't have anyone in your family named John. The John name, uh, we don't have time for that rabbit trail either. But maybe next year on that one too. So, so they, they, they go find Zechariah. You know, he's been in this cone of silence for 10 months, nine or 10 months anyway, hasn't been able to hear anything, hasn't been able to communicate anything. And they ask him, they made signs to his father, like he can't hear. So that's why I say he's, he's deaf as well. They make signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Now, <laughs> Good move, Zechariah. Last time you weren't completely like a green, obedient, believing the angel, there's a bit of a consequence. You haven't been able to talk for 10 months, which some of you actually wish your spouse would see an angel and not be able to talk for 10 months. But regardless, he says his name will be John because that's what the angel told him. It's not going to be Zach Jr. It's going to be John. And when he did that, that step of obedience, it says immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak, praising God. The guy has not spoken for probably at least 10 months. Now all of a sudden he can talk again, he can hear again, he's going crazy, but he's not just using up words that have been stored up, he's praising God. In fact, the text goes on to say, and the Holy Spirit came upon him and he began to prophesy. So now he is being, using these, these words that the Holy Spirit is speaking through him. And in so doing, one of the things he does is that he writes a song. Now at Christmas, we sing a lot of Christmas songs, Christmas carols. The first Christmas songs are found in Luke chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 2. And there's four of them. These are like the original Christmas carols. There's four of these songs, or they can be called uh, canticles. Um, there's Mary's Magnificat, found in Luke 1. There's Zacharias Benedictus, that's the song I told you we were going to talk about. There's the angels Gloria, and then there's Simeon, the old man, his Nunc Dimittis. Now, these, these titles 
are Latin words of usually the first word of their song. So in Mary's Magnificat, you know, my soul magnifies the Lord. In the Latin, it's magnify my soul, the Lord. So the, the magni Magnificat is to magnify the Lord. All right, the angels, you know, gloria in excelsis Dei. So glory to God in the highest, that one. The old man, uh, Simeon, the, the nunc dimittis, he says, now dismiss your servant. You, you know, take me home. I, I'm done. I, I've seen everything I need to see. But the one we're looking at is Zachariah's Benedictus, which sounds like Benedictine, benediction. Benedictus is the Latin word for blessed or blessed, because his song starts off this way. Blessed, Benedictus, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And then he just talks about this. He throws in this little parenthetical footnote, throws in this little parenthetical footnote, and he says, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. He knows the prophets. The angel talked about the prophets. And as he quotes and writes this song under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he begins to quote the prophets and the prophecies that are fulfilled in the birth of his son, John the Baptist. And it's really an amazing thing. Picture, picture this old, older, older man in his 60s, 70s, maybe early 80s, we don't know. And he's got his eight-day-old son. And his hands are trembling, not from age. And his eyes have welled up with tears. And he cannot take the smile off of his face. And he cannot take the gaze off of his son. And as he writes this song, it's like he begins to sing to this little boy that he never thought he would ever have. And he sings these words, and you, my child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, quoting Malachi chapter 3. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of God. As he's holding this son and realizing he's my son. And not only is he the fulfillment of the prophecies, but he's the Elijah to come, which means not only is this great joy for me, but that he's coming to announce one that's even greater, that the Messiah will come. And so he continues to sing the tender mercies of God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Now he begins to quote Malachi chapter 4. To shine on those living in darkness. Now he's quoting Isaiah chapter 9. And in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. He just brings up all of these fulfillments of, of scripture, of prophecy that's taking place in this son of his. So, let's chase that rabbit trail just a little bit. So he, he gets to, to Malachi. We'll, we'll get there eventually. But he's, he's quoting Isaiah. Now, in Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah paints a realistic picture of how bleak things are for the people of God. Isaiah chapter 8, he says, Distressed and hungry, they will uh, roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become estranged, uh, enraged, and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. 
bad, bad situation. Things in life are tough. They blame the government and they even blame God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. It's a bleak situation. They've got a horrible thing going on in life. They're blaming everybody. They look, they're blaming God. They won't trust in him. They look to the earth and when they look to the earth, when they look to find solutions or help or hope, it's not there. It seems pretty hopeless. And then with one word, Isaiah starts off chapter nine and he says, nevertheless. This is the current reality. This is the situation. This is how you're responding. You're not finding hope. You're not finding help from anyone here on this earth. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, and then he gives hope, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. It doesn't have to be this way, and it won't always be this way. And then in, in chapter 9, verse 2, this beautiful prophecy where it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Those are the words that Zechariah is saying to John the Baptist, this little son of his, this, this little boy, when, when he's saying, let, let's look at it again where he said this, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet. Now look at this. He talks about this rising sun that has dawned from heaven. Remember, Isaiah had said, they will look to the earth and not find hope They'll look to human answers and not find answers. They won't get help. But there's a sun that dawns from heaven, not from earth. Uh, I love uh, in Tim Keller's book, Hidden Christmas, he says this. Notice that it doesn't say, from the world a light has sprung, but upon the world a light has dawned. It is it has come from outside. There is a light outside of this world, and Jesus has brought that light to save us. Indeed, he is the light. Not from the world, but upon the world. That is from the outside. You know, um, I'm going to keep chasing this rabbit a little bit farther on this one, okay? The, uh, the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Verse 3, I believe it is, says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, Hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. You know, though he lays his glory by, born that man no more shall die. He talks about this son of righteousness that's risen with healing in its wings. Don't you think, oh boy, that's uh, very, very poetic. Well, no, no, actually that's very prophetic because again, that lyric comes out of Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, and it says, But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Okay. It's not Son, S-O-N, of Righteousness, like the, the Son of the Heavenly Father. And surely he's not talking about the literal Son that's 93 million miles away, the closest star. He must be talking metaphorically or symbolically. Yes, and what if? Ready to chase a rabbit? What if it's something even more glorious? 
than just symbolism and metaphor. All right. So we go back to the beginning of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, it was void and all that. It gets to the point where it says this. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And he separated the light from the darkness, and the light he called day, and the dark he called night. And it was evening, it was morning, it was the first day. He said it was good. It's all good. Okay, we got day, we got night, we got light, we got dark. A few verses later, it says, God said, let there be lights, plural, in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, to let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and days and years. God made two great lights, the, creator, uh, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. So God creates light and day, darkness and night on the first day before there is a sun, before there is a moon, that there is a, a, a source of light that is not contingent or dependent on this star 93 million miles away from earth. There's another source of light, more glorious even than that which comes from the sun. Okay, fast forward 66 books later, we get to Revelation, and John gets this glimpse of the recreation of how God restores and makes all things new again, and there's a new heaven, and there's a new earth, and the new Jerusalem, the city of God, and look what it says in Revelation, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. You see that? We're not talking about the actual sun. We're talking about something more glorious, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, which makes you start thinking, okay, well, that makes more sense now in Luke chapter 2 when the angels show up and the, the shepherds are afraid. And it says, and the, the glory of the Lord shone round about them. The source of the light that was not from them, it was not from the sun. It was from something more glorious. Or in John chapter 1 when it's talking about Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it says, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only come from the Father. Or in Hebrews chapter 1 where it's talking about how, how Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his being sustaining by his powerful word that it's this glorious beautiful thing of a light source that is not contingent on the sun and more than just metaphor it's from heaven and so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Christ. What an amazing thought. In John chapter 17, Jesus says this at the end of his, um, at the end of his uh, life. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Like the source of light that is not the sun is the glory of the Father revealed through the radiance of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In the 90s, we sang until we were sick of this song, Shine, Jesus, Shine, and I'm not suggesting we bring it back out again. Shine, Jesus, Shine, it's the glory of God. 
And it's not just wishful thinking. It's not Annie singing, the sun will come out tomorrow. I love you tomorrow. You know, it's, it's, it's something beyond that. It's not a created light. It's the creator light. It's who Jesus is. It's what he is. Okay, well, look, I've gone down way too many rabbit trails. I'm, I'm out of time, but I still got some more to go. Um, okay, so, so here's the deal. We, we've chased this rabbit trail from Genesis to Revelation, from Isaiah to Malachi to Zechariah to John the Baptist, who himself said, I am not the light. I come as a witness to the light. And we read in John chapter 1, in him, Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Of course it has not understood it. Nothing can out, out, uh, overshadow or, or put out the glory of God. And it goes on. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. That was Jesus. The light that had existed, the glory that existed before the creation of the world. And then, when the angel comes to the shepherds, he says, this is not just good theology, this is good news. Luke chapter two, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. He is the Lord, but he's born to you. That this glorious one is transcendent and personal. He is the Lord, the eternal one, through whom all things were created, through whom all things are sustained, through whom all things are redeemed and recreated. And yet he's personal. He's come to you. All right. So John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay. I told you in my list that I was also going to tell you about a homely genius. So I, I know I'm long. You can go ahead and leave if you want, but I think this is worth listening to. So he, he was a genius, spoke English, but by the age of four had learned Latin. By the age of nine had learned Greek. By the age of 11, he had learned French. And by the age of 13, he had learned Hebrew. And because of his command on vocabulary and language, in his brilliant mind, he could put together things in uh, cadence with rhyming. And so he did that a lot, like to the point of being very annoying. Like if you've ever watched The Princess Bride, um, some of you have never, uh, never seen that, before you die, watch it, okay? If you've ever watched that, you know there's this, this point where, the, where he says, no more rhymes now, I mean it. And the response is, anyone want a peanut? And he just continues on. Okay, so this brilliant genius was so filled with rhymes, it annoyed his father so much, you know, told him to stop it. And when he did not stop, his father bent him over the knee to discipline him for making more poems. And this is what this young boy said to him. Oh, father, do some mercy take, and I will no more verses make. Even then, he couldn't help himself. But he became an incredible poet, and the, and the beauty and the, and the power of his words. There was a woman named Elizabeth Singer who was herself a poet, but she was so taken by his poetry and his writing that she began to correspond, and they began this correspondence uh, through the mail and actually fell in love without having ever seen each other. And and had even talked about getting married. And in one account, it says that she was the one who proposed marriage to him. But when she actually saw him, <laughs> she retracted 
her proposal, and this is what she wrote about this man, only five feet tall with a shallow face, hooked nose, prominent cheekbones, small eyes, and death-like color. Her name was Elizabeth Singer. So she did not marry him, but loved his poetry. Well, the man was brilliant. I mean, he wrote books on ge geography, astronomy, psychology, grammar. Um, his book, Logic, was the standard textbook for Yale, Harvard, Oxford, and Cambridge for 200 years. But he wasn't just a brilliant mind. He loved God. And maybe what he's best known for these days is that he wrote 750 hymns. If you ever sang, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past, he wrote that. If you've ever sang, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, he wrote that. And when he took Psalm 98 and paraphrased it, it was turned into a song that says, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. So we've chased a lot of rabbits. And the prophets and John the Baptist and all of the scripture was pointing people to prepare for the Messiah, the joy that would come to the world. And in these last days before our uh, time together to celebrate that on Thursday, I wonder, would you carve out time every single day to prepare him room to focus on Jesus?